Still got a little ways to go. But uh, enjoying the study. Chapter 2, as we're going to see, is going to be sort of beginning the, the body of the letter and things. It's going to have sort of a different sort of tone. And you might be going, what in the world does this have to do with me? Well, it has a lot to do with us, and we're going to see that, that Paul is going to be defending um, his motivation and, and the message as well. He's going to be defending the ministry. He's going to be defending this through showing and pointing not just to his character, but as well to the character of God. What really chapter 2 is going to be doing is this. For you and I, here's where the application is for us. As we see the life of Paul, his ministry, and that of, as well of Timothy and Silas uh, to the church at Thessalonica, what we need to understand is that it was a very real ministry. It was a very real message. And these men were very real men for God. Were they perfect? Was, let me ask you this, all right? We'll have pop quiz this morning. Wake you guys up a little bit. Was the Apostle Paul perfect? No, that's right. Was he close to perfect? No, because none of us are. That's right. But nevertheless, what we do find is that he was tremendously and mightily used of the Lord. The reason why is we're going to find is because his character was straight. Was it perfect? No, but he could live blamelessly. You and I think that blameless often means sinless, but it does not. Uh, There is a qualification for the the pastor, for the ministry, uh, for men like this, for men in my day as well. Uh, to, to be blameless, and this does not mean that we are to be sinless because we would love to be, but in our flesh, and as long as we're in this world, we won't be. But this idea of being blameless, and this is that there was nothing that the church at Thessalonica could truly look at him and go, well, you know, he wasn't really real, he was sinful here, this, that, and the other. We have to understand that what we really believe has to be really lived, right? You can fake churchianity, you can fake ministry. Matter of fact, you can do plenty of ministry. There are plenty of people in the Bible that Jesus even talks about. There will be many who come to me and will say, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? And he will say, depart from me, for I never knew you. That's the difference maker there. So we've got to understand here that these were men who genuinely knew Christ Jesus, our Lord, and they truly, genuinely lived it out. Who you are at church should be who you are at work. Who you are at work should be who you are at home. You see this? They might be different hats that you're wearing or different places that you are, but if you are in Christ, that is who you should be everywhere you go. There should not be so much difference of going where you're walking around in Walmart and then you see somebody who you recognize from church and then you straighten up or you take things out of your buggy, right? Yeah, don't pretend like y'all haven't done it or seen it, okay? (laughs) Unfortunately, this happens, don't it? You see... Here's what we've got to understand. You know what the world's looking for today? They're looking, looking for a lot of things. But I can tell you this, they are looking for truth and for what is real. Now, if we have the truth, and we believe that the truth is real, and that it is a real truth, and that it is the only truth, we should really live it. If we really believe something, we should be genuine in that faith, genuine in that practice, day in and day out. Right? Be who you are. Be what you be in Christ. Right? If you are in Him, live it. Now, as we look at this, this is ultimately going to be the message for this chapter. And it is going to be a reminder for that church and for many of the opponents that Paul was facing. Apparently, what we're going to see is that there were some folks who were going, you know, I think he came here with the wrong motives. Let me ask you, can you know somebody's motives? Kind of hard. It's tough. Sometimes you can because sometimes they make their motives pretty well known, right? Motives, though, sometimes can be hidden. You can hold the door or for a little old lady or cut your neighbor's grass and do it with a motive that outwardly seems very nice. Oh, just trying to be helpful. 
but it sure would be nice if I got compensated, or I sure would like that thank you. If you're doing something for the thank you, well, that's the wrong motivation, right? If you're doing something because you want people to know your name, that's the wrong motivation. If you're doing something for anything other than the glory and honor of Christ, it's the wrong motivation. Motivation, I would say, matters just as much as what actually happens, right? Now, Paul can preach, he can plant a church, he can see people come to the Lord, all that stuff. But if the motivation is so that Paul would be glorified and honored, it's wood, hay, and stubble. You and I often get, uh, you know, want to help and serve the Lord. And that's a good thing. That's the desire for those who truly know Christ. But what can happen is this, is that we serve in nursery, but we do so in the flesh. We serve in children's club, but we do so in the flesh. What is the motivation? Give me someone who is motivated for the glory of Christ over someone who is motivated for oneself. The one who is motivated for oneself may be more talented, maybe more gifted, maybe a better speaker, maybe more organized, structured, and maybe even smell better. Give me the one that wants the glory of Christ. This is what is needed. We need a realness to our hearts, a genuineness. Sadly, one of the most insincere places that there is is the church pew or the church pulpit. It has grown this way statistically. It can be seen. You can see it by the way folks live their lives day in and day out. We need a genuineness in our walk, all right? That's all free of charge. Let's get in here, all right? Chapter 2, let's look today at verses 1 through 6. That's where we're going to begin. Paul defending his motivation. For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you that it was not in vain. But even after that we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated as ye know at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. For our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile, but as we were allowed of God to be put to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak not as pleasing men, but God which trieth our hearts. Who knows the hearts? God. Who tries the hearts? God. He says, For neither at any time use we flattering words, as ye know, nor a cloak of covetousness. God is witness. Nor of men sought we glory. Neither of you, nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. So chapter 2 begins the body of the letter with the unfortunate necessity to defend the motivation of their ministry and the message that had been given when Paul, Silas, and Timothy were used to found the church. Here we have to begin with this. He jumps in, as we had talked about in chapter 1, and he goes, I thank you because I know these things about you. You've received the gospel. Uh, people have heard about your faithfulness, and, and the gospel has been spread because of you. Praise the Lord for that. That's a wonderful thing. But then he gets into chapter 2, and he says, well, now let's get into some of this. There's some folks who are saying that we came for our own motivation or for our own glory. There's some folks saying that we came and we wanted to get a name for ourselves. That's the wrong answer. Now, here's what he says. That there was opposition when the church at Thessalonica was founded from the Jews in Thessalonica and continued in the church after their departure. Notice this, verse 1. He says, For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you that it was not in vain, but even after we had suffered before. Now, think about this. There had been a great deal of suffering they had gone through. I want to look for just a moment this morning at sort of the foundation of the church at Thessalonica. So hold your place here and turn with me to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. 
Acts chapter 17 is the found, founding of the church at Thessalonica, the church of Thessalonians, if you will. Uh, Thessalonian First Baptist Church. <laughs> I don't know, whatever you want to call it. Uh, here we look at chapter 17. It says, in verse number 1, Now when they had passed through uh, Amphipolis and uh, Apollonia, uh, Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where was a synagogue of the Jews. Now remember this. Where was the gospel going? The gospel was going to the Jew first and also to the Greek. As Paul would say in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God uh, unto, uh, to everyone that believed, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. It's the power of God unto salvation, right? And this is the message of salvation. Now, what did they do? When they went from city to city, town to town, place to place, they showed up to the Jewish synagogue because the gospel was to the Jew first. He would preach there, but as well, through this, it was the central place where people were gathered together. If you want a message to get out, where do you go? You go where people are, right? Naturally, so they go where people are. Now, in this, it says, And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures. The idea of they spent at least about probably three weeks there. They're pre he's preaching, he's preaching, he's preaching. He's reasoning with them. Notice, out of the Scriptures. What Scriptures? The Holy Scriptures. What are the Holy Scriptures? From Genesis through up until this point, what had been written. And there, some of the New Testament at this point in Paul's ministry is still being written. And so what we find is that Christ is preached from Genesis to Revelation. Christ is in and throughout all of the Scriptures. What do we find that the uh, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch were doing? The Ethiopian eunuch was reading out of Isaiah. And what did Philip do? He said, this is Christ. Look here. Look, this is Christ. We find that the Scripture points to Jesus. Verse number 3. He's opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead. That's the Gospel, right? As he tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ came, He died on the cross for our sins, was buried, rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. According to the Scriptures. He says, And that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. What does that mean? He's the anointed one. The promised one. The promised seed of, of the woman. Uh, the one who would come to bear uh, the redemption, to bear the sins of many. This is the Savior to all who will believe. It says, and some of them believed. Now this shows us the power of the Gospel. The power of the Gospel is able to save all. But it only saves those who believe. The Gospel call is to all people and should be to all people. However, it is only received by those who trust. And those who trust are those who will be saved, who are saved. He says, and they consorted with Paul and Silas and of the devout Greeks, a great multitude of the chief women, not a few, but the Jews which believed not moved with envy. Notice that. That's the wrong motivation, isn't it? What was the motivation of Paul there when he's preaching? Souls to be saved, and in so doing, God to be glorified. What do we find the Jewish folks there at Thessalonica? It says that they're envious. Why? Because now there's another crowd that's rising. We always get envious of things that we ought not, and envy is a sin itself. And here, we find that their motivation is out of envy. It took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort and gathered a company and set all the city in uproar and assaulted the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are coming hither also. What a thought that is. That Paul and his band of merry men, if you will, are preaching the gospel from town to town, place to place, and what do these Jews accuse him of? These men that turned the world upside down. 
Was it because Paul was the best speaker? No. As a matter of fact, there was others who in this time were fantastic preachers. Apollos, or Paulo, was also known as a fantastic order and preacher of the Word of God. There's plenty of folks like that. How about this? Was it because he was the tallest, the bravest? It was simply because he trusted the Lord. As a matter of fact, it wasn't Paul that turned the world upside down. It wasn't Peter or Silas or Timothy who turned the world upside down. It was Christ. It was his gospel. But what does Jesus do? He uses men, even imperfect men, to proclaim the truth of his perfect gospel. That is to be to all people to come unto him and find salvation. Now, he says, "...in whom Jason hath received, these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus." And that's true. "...and they troubled the people and the rulers of the city when they heard these things, and when they had taken uh, security of Jason and of the other, they let them go. And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews." So they continue on. It rises up and all these folks come against them. There's persecution. What do you think is going to be left behind for those who are like Jason and other believers there at Thessalonica? Persecution. More folks who are envious of them. Why? Because the message of the Jews did not change the world. Uh, no, but the Gospel did. The Gospel now is the uniter between Jew and Gentile and it's found in the Lord Jesus Christ by His death, burial, and resurrection through the shedding of His blood for remission of sins. This is now what brings people together from every tribe, tongue, kindred, and nation. To, to bring us together so that one day we all, and people from all walks of life, rich, poor, yellow, black, and white, and everything else in between, can gather around the throne of God and to praise Him and to know Him and to be washed and cleansed by His blood. That's the power of the Gospel. That's what changes the world. That's what turns it upside down. That's what also not only gives power to be saved, but gives persecution persecutes the church because people who don't receive the gospel hate the gospel. Hate the church. Hate those that preach such. So they come against it. And the Jews hated Paul for what he now preached and continuously sought to bring persecution and disruption of his ministry. This happened all throughout. If you remember this, Paul used to be Jewish, wasn't he? Matter of fact, he was a Jew of the Jews. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, sat at the feet of Gamaliel, had countless understanding of the Scriptures, but when he trusted Christ, everything changed. Now, in this, let's go back here to 1 Thessalonians. Let's go back to 1 Thessalonians 2 here. He says, our gospel is not in vain. He gets into this, and he's talking about this persecution. Guzik writes, Paul wrote here in a personal manner, but this really wasn't a personal issue for Paul. He knew that it mattered for the sake of the gospel. If Paul was discredited, then the gospel message itself would be discredited. Now, Guzik brings up a good point here, and we're getting into this, the, the meat here. Why is Paul seeking to defend his motivation for the ministry? The reason why Paul is seeking to defend the motivation for his ministry is not because he's upset that somebody didn't like the way he talked or like what he had to say. If anyone didn't care what people thought of him personally, it was the Apostle Paul. He preached the Word of God faithfully, unapologetically, and continuously, regardless of the beatings that he faced, the jailings that he faced, the torture that he faced, and ultimately a death that he would face. 
but he cared that his motivation for the gospel was known because folks, if they could discredit Paul, they felt that they could discredit the gospel. Now, the same is to be said about today. We can become a reproach to the gospel if we are living as the world lives. We can become a reproach to our testimony if our testimony is not matching what we say we testify, right? If we say we believe the gospel of Christ, if we say that we are born again, if we say that we are trusting in Jesus, if we say that we desire to live for Him, we can bring quite the issue and discrediting of the gospel message, of a church, of who we say that we are. You can say that your testimony is to be born again, faithful to the Lord, and live another way. Be motivated by another way and have much of it questioned. And this happens quite often. Perhaps even I would say unjustly, but nevertheless, we should never think that lost people will think justly or rightly because they can't. When they look at you and they see your life and they hear your words, they will either believe your words because of the testimony of which you live or they will see your testimony and go, I don't believe a word he says. Now, Paul here comes to this place where he understands for the gospel's sake, he wants to show once and for all to them that no matter what men have said about him or Silas or Timothy or any other Christian for that matter, that when the gospel is preached in power by the Spirit of God and that it is done for the glory of God, that God gets all the credit, God gets all the glory, and that the motivation remains pure. Our motivation must remain pure as well. We have to ask ourselves some tough questions sometimes. How many of you want to see the church grow? Me too. Now why? Is it because we want more people? Or is it because we want God to be more glorified? Is it because we want people to be born again and to see them go to heaven whether they stay here in this building or not? Or is it because we want to build our own kingdom? Now, I say this because I have to ask these questions, and these questions, rather, I think the Holy Spirit has to ask to me oftentimes. We've got to understand that our motivation must remain pure. We have a pure gospel, but we need a pure, genuine motivation for the gospel. The two must match. And when the two come together, what we find is that what Paul had talked about in 1 Thessalonians 1.5, look at this. Remember this. He told them five verses into this letter, for our gospel came not unto you in word only, because it can't. Words are good. Preaching the gospel is good. But preaching the gospel and living a genuine Christian life gives some power, some genuineness, some crediting to such. He says, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost, because ultimately He is the one that powers us to proclaim the gospel and as well to live the Christian life. You must never forget that. He then says, and in much assurance, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. Why did he do what he did? For their sake. Not for his own sake. He's given all to Christ. If I die, I die. If I live, I live. All is for Christ. And we need such an attitude as well. That's not just an apostolic attitude. But sadly, it seems to have been gone away with. We need the same attitude that whether we live, we live unto the Lord. Whether we die, we die unto the Lord because we belong to Him. Now, He then says, you saw what manner of men we were among you. You've seen our testimony. You saw the way that we suffered. You saw the way we were persecuted. 
the world must see the same. How you respond to adversity, suffering, challenges, difficulties, tribulations, the daily struggle of life. And let's be honest, life is a struggle. And it's going to be until we leave this world. But until then, you're going to wake up and you might start off good, but by the end of the, by the middle of the day, you might be struggling. There is a constant struggle and a constant battle. Why? Because of the flesh, the world, and the devil. Our three greatest enemies, and probably in that order, honestly. Now look at this. As we get into verse 1, he says, For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you, that it was not in vain. Paul calls the, the brethren to remember the truth of Paul's ministerial integrity and the powerful effect of the gospel that was preached. Green writes, character and results could not be separated. Sound character produced credible results. We often want the results without the character. We want the credibility, but without having to live the character, right? We want people to just believe us and to be changed by our very presence or our persona or all these things, whatever it might be. We miss the fact that we've got to walk it. We can talk the gospel. We can talk church. We can talk the language of Jesus, the whole thing, right? We know all the words and all the lingo, and half the people around here still do too. But if we don't walk it, it's meaningless. Meaningless. Paul says, we came unto you, you saw the way in which we came. Notice how he says that our entrance in unto you, it was not in vain. This phrase, not vain, that is, that it was meaning it was full of power, as we saw in chapter 1, verse 5, the Greek for was expressed rather, hath been and is, implying the permanent and continuing character of his preaching, meaning it was never in vain, nor is it in vain now, nor will it be in vain in the future. It's not empty, but it has power. If I had a, if I had a drill up here, cordless drill, right? And I plugged it, right? I, I, I've got a cordless drill, right? And I have the battery in there, but the battery's not charged. Is that thing going to work? No. And, and I've got one, and I, I don't think that battery's charged. That shows you how much I use it. But if I charge the battery and put it in, would it have power? Right, it's supposed to at least, right? Now, I do buy cheap tools because I don't use them much, so it's hard to tell. It's a, it's a coin toss. But think about this. Your life is not meant to be lived in vain. Your life is not meant to be meaningless. But rather, it is meant to be lived in power. Your power? No. His power? Yes. Where does the power come from? As he said in 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 5 and 6, through the Holy Ghost, which gave them, according to the end of chapter uh, 1, verse 6, that they received the word much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. You can only have joy and affliction through the power of the Holy Ghost. You can only have joy in the Holy Ghost through Him. That's it. By abiding in Him, by trusting in Him, by obeying Him, by being led of Him. So here's what we find Paul's writing about in verse number 1. He says, whenever I've preached... There's been effect, not because of who I am, but because of who God is. Not because of any power in me, but because the power that God has given and works through me. He's saying that we did not come to you and you did not receive this as vain or empty. Rather, they had received it with power. Even in the midst of affliction, that shows you how the gospel is powerful. If the gospel wasn't powerful, folks wouldn't believe it when they could be persecuted for it. 
Think about this. Somewhere in the world today, someone very well may trust Christ whose family will denounce them, whose village may turn against them. But that's the power of the gospel. If the gospel had no power, why would we ever believe it? And why would we ever risk affliction for it? The moment we, though, do trust the gospel, you must be prepared for affliction. We somehow think that because trusting in Christ is our eternal get-out-of-jail-free card that somehow it gets us out of tribulations here. Wrong. As a matter of fact, what it does is it gives you a fast track to suffering. And we don't like that. To believe the gospel, what is the gospel? Yes, it's the victory of Christ, but it's also the suffering of Christ. Yes, it's the cross, the victorious cross, but it's also the suffering that took place at that cross. It is a call to now die to oneself, to live for Him and through Him and for Him to live through us. And what we see is that when we find the power of the gospel given that God is at work. The gospel is power. And a life surrendered to the gospel, like Paul, like Silas, like Timothy, like many of the Thessalonians, what we find is that a life surrendered to the gospel, that one soul is given power. Not from anything that they might have on their own, but rather through what the Lord gives them. And what does He give? He gives Himself. The Holy Ghost of God. He tells us, Whenever and wherever the gospel is preached with power and lived in practice, God is at work. We must trust that. The greatest thing that a pastor can do for his people is to live a godly life. It's not to sit on your front porch. And that's a nice thing, but that's an extra. The greatest thing I can do for you isn't even to visit you in the hospital. That's a nice thing and a good thing. And I'm happy to do it. Let me know if you're sick or dying or something, all right? <laughs> Let me know. I'll be there, all right? The greatest thing that I can do or any other pastor can do for his people is to live godly. The greatest thing that you can do for your home is to live godly. The greatest thing that you can do for your situation, whatever you find yourself, whatever trouble you find yourself in right now, live godly. You know, the greatest thing that you can do for the souls of your lost neighbors and your lost loved ones Live godly. In so doing, what we find is that we can live a life like Paul had. A place that has power and use for God. Morris writes, in a masterly understatement, Paul goes on to say that his entrance was not a failure. The perfect tense of his verb gives the idea of a continuing result. Not only did the preaching have immediate impressive consequences, right? Remember back in Acts that we talked about in 17? People believed. People were changed. As a matter of fact, even the Jews there in Thessalonica in Acts 17 accused them of saying, these are the men that had the world turned upside down. That's what we see. That's what we want. This shows as well, but a permanent change was wrought in the lives of believers. The word kenos or failure or vain or empty means empty. Paul strongly repudiates any thought that he had frittered his time away in aimless pursuits. He had come with a definite aim and he had secured what he had aimed at. Believe the reason why we miss is because we have the wrong aim. Think the reason why sometimes we miss revival is because we have the wrong aim. We want everybody else to get right. And because everyone else doesn't get right, we don't get right. 
So revival doesn't come. We had a meeting, but not revival. I think we miss as well just an average Sunday morning to worship the Lord, fellowship with God, fellowship with the saints, to make disciples, to be prepared to go to outreach, right? We see all these things around us, right? To remind us of what we're here for, of what our life is about. But we miss these things because we aim wrong. You know why you didn't get anything out of worship? Because your aim was wrong. You were aiming to get pleased and to feel something. Not to glorify God. If your aim during the worship hour is to get something, you're missing out. If our aim for discipleship is so that we can say we put X amount of people through X amount of classes or had X amount of children at X amount of things, our aim was wrong. If we said we had X amount of meals this year, we gave out X amount of chickens, we ate as a total of church 1,200 chickens and, and uh, let's see, 200 hams, right? Praise the Lord. Wow. <laughs> what fellowship we had. But if your aim was to get in, get out, if your aim was to come and be unnoticed, your aim was wrong. If we go and we say outreach, we go, yeah, we, we want to reach out. And so we'll maybe, I don't know, talk the talk. Or maybe we'll tell somebody, hey, come to church. That's a good thing. I'm not discouraging from coming and invite people to church. But if your aim is just that way, you can say, I brought a friend to church, or so-and-so is coming because of me. Well, why are you coming? They're coming because of you. I wonder why you're coming. You want folks to know Christ. This brings us to this, and we're closing. We find just the simplicity of verse 1 that Paul's ministry was not in vain, was not empty. You know why? Because his motivation was not vain and empty. When our motivation is the gospel, and the glory of God, God does great things. We find that our motivation, our aim, if you will, is for God to be glorified even in our suffering and persecution. God will do great things. So what's our aim? What's your aim? What's our motivation? Are we living Christian lives in vain? Brethren, it ought not be so. May we live for the furtherance of the gospel and the glory of God in all things and through all things. Let us pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this time. God, we're grateful we could study your word. Help us now, God, to have these truths applied to our heart by your Holy Spirit. God, that we would see the great need to have the right motivation. Lord, that as we're going into this next hour of service, Lord, we pray that, God, you would meet with us, that you would change our hearts, and, Lord, that you would be glorified as you work amongst us through Uh, as we fellowship, as we sing, as we worship you, as we hear your word preached, God, that that you would get the glory and that that would be our aim. That would be your motivation behind everything that we say and do. God, we love you. We thank you for this time and we thank you for Christ and for all that he is and for all that he's done. And, And it's his name we pray. Amen.